0: All parties need to step up and continue to lean forward. This is not about one party, it's about all of us. There are some who bear the greater responsibility and the greater burden. They all must step up.
1: You've just heard from Mr. Simon Steele, the newly appointed UNFCCC Executive Secretary. Welcome to Climate Talks, the podcast that follows global climate negotiations and this year, the journey to COP27. Climate Talks is produced by Melbourne Climate Futures and the Melbourne Centre for Cities at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Cathy Oak, and I'm joined by Don Henry as my co-host today. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was produced. I pay respects to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We invite our listeners to take a moment to reflect and acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which you live.
0: Welcome listeners, Don here, Melbourne Enterprise Professor of Environmentalism. With our guest today, Cathy and I, We'll be focusing on how the current energy crisis, both globally and nationally, impact on the COP negotiations. But before turning to our guests, Cathy, let's talk briefly about the latest on COP27.
1: So, Don... We're lucky to have you here today as our co-host and thought it'd be a great opportunity to actually ask you for your take on the latest of COP27. You know, where are we up to in the negotiations or the logistics or the tensions between the different moving parts? Just a
0: couple of thoughts. This COP will be very much about are we properly getting on with the job of implementing the Paris Agreement and the important Glasgow Pact. But I think we're going to see a lot of pressure on developed economies to ensure they're putting forward the money they promised to help developing economies both cut emissions and adapt to the impact of climate change. Plus, there'll be a big discussion about loss and damage, and I know we'll come to that later.
1: Yes. Yeah, so just as a recap, what does loss and damage refer to, Don, and where is it actually up to in terms of that conversation?
0: So sadly, we know there's already serious impacts from climate change that are occurring and will increase. And they're particularly impacting communities in developing economies. Take, for example, the Pacific Island nations. And so loss and damage is about the need to ensure there's assistance available to communities that are badly impacted by climate change and who probably don't have the wherewithal to adjust to those impacts.
1: That's right. And, I mean, obviously there's there's that conversation and then given the topic of today's episode, there's also this issue of food access and energy access going on. And given we are in the African continent for this COP, you know, many African countries are not only wanting to have a, a louder voice on the platform in Egypt. But I'm sure that that will also come with some expectation that maybe some of the temporary increases in fossil fuel outputs will be called for just to improve living standards and access to energy. So I don't know where that's heading.
0: Uh, I think, uh, Kathy, you're right. There's a couple of contextual things that are tough for this COP. One is the energy crisis issues around the globe, and we'll go into that in the talks today. The other is the geopolitics is tough. I mean, there's serious tension between the US and China to the degree that's affecting their discussions on climate change. But I think as well, there's some upsides. So the US Inflation Reduction Act, this very big package of domestic legislation in the US, it means the US is starting to walk the talk on action on climate change, as is Australia, And both Australia and the US can build some momentum coming into this COP, as can some of the developing countries, like we're seeing some new progressive commitments from some of the Pacific Island nations as well.
1: Just to round out this latest in COP section, we should mention that there's been important announcements about the strategic focus of COP27 and the president-designate of COP27, Sameh Chokri, has announced that the overarching goal of COP27 will be implementation. And, and as you've said you know, at the start of this, particularly focusing on the implementation of the Paris Agreement and that delivering of the pledges that were mentioned at the start of this section.
0: And Cathy, it's an important call to action because... You know, countries have agreed strong goals that have a science basis, but the Glasgow COP last year, everybody agreed we're still short of the mark. We're short of the mark on emission reduction commitments. We're short of the mark on financing to developing countries to help them with emission reductions, adaptation and loss and damage. So people need to step up to the plate more Interestingly, I think Australia can play quite an important role in that this year.
1: Indeed, and so we should probably get to today's episode. Today's episode is titled Collisions of Crises. Let's introduce our guests. Who have we got joining us today, Don?
0: So we've got joining us Tony Wood, and Tony's the Energy Program Director at the Grattan Institute, here associated with the University of Melbourne. We're welcoming Alex Scott. Climate, Diplomacy and Geopolitics Program Leader at E3G, one of the very fine global NGO think tanks. And we've got Rebecca Markey-Towler from Melbourne Climate Futures here at the University of Melbourne as well, Cathy. Welcome to the show, Tony. Great to have you here. Thanks, Don. Tony, we want to have a look at the energy crisis, the so-called energy crisis in Australia and cost of living pressures. How do these conversations in Australia impact on our contribution to the negotiations at COP27, in your view?
2: Well, I think it'd be foolish to suggest that they won't. There's no doubt that when push comes to shove, the short-term pressures tend to overcome longer-term reality. Now that's not to say that Australians are not looking for action on climate change. The question is whether the Australian community generally wants to be part of the action themselves or have the government do it all for us. And I think that's where the debate becomes difficult, particularly for the new government, who has certainly committed very strongly to action on climate change, including what looks like a legislated, for the first time ever, a legislated target to reduce emissions. That's a really important milestone, Don, and I think that puts a huge constraint and what this government must do and so far I think they've been tracking okay but the reality of uh, the cost impacts of energy I mean you only have to look at what's going on in the UK and not, unfortunately not nearly as bad as that to see how this can play out in ways that would make it difficult in the short term for the government to stay the, stay the chase on this. They have to do that but it'll become harder. So energy supply
0: is an issue, particularly in Eastern Australia. So how do you think that may play out on Australia's positioning?
2: Look, I think there's two ways of looking at that. One is on the, the domestic side, we had two horrible things come together. One was... Arguably, as one of the impacts of a changing climate, we saw flooding of coal mines, which somewhat ironically made it difficult to get the coal to the coal-fired power stations. That resulted in a desperate shortage of gas for gas-fired power stations to make up the difference. Winter, rainy weather obviously didn't help from a uh, a renewable energy perspective as well. And then we had the need, the fact that the Europeans were calling desperately for more gas and prepared to pay a very high price for it. So put all those things together, you end up with a nice old recipe for a crisis and that's what we've had. We're coming out of it. Things are improving, but that's what we've got.
0: And Tony, just thinking aloud in, in the context of the COP, we'll probably see Australia's new emission reduction target warmly welcomed, so to speak. But for anyone paying attention in detail particularly in relation to the energy supply issues here in Australia, they'll be seeing a lot of pressure for the opening up of new gas fields in particular. So how do you see that playing?
2: Well, I think we've got uh, an interesting pathway to stay on with this, uh, because there are these, as you say, Don, these two pressures. On the one hand, you know, I think the Australian government will be committed to a domestic em- emissions reduction of forty-three percent below two thousand and five levels. They will legislate it. So we have tied ourselves to that legislation. To be fair, we don't have a comprehensive policy to do that, but the things that are going on now are certainly capable of delivering that forty-three percent emissions reduction. But if we're talking about domestic emissions, and it also becomes important that any new proposed fossil fuel development, such as a gas field, must be contained within that cap. That's the whole point of this cap, and this is where the debate's going to be incredibly volatile in the next month or so, right now for this government, because companies will be calling out, oh, this is too difficult, it's too hard, right now we can't do this. At the same time, Australia is a global citizen, and we must be, as part of the global community, committed to the 1.5 degrees target. Now, at the moment, we're not on track to do that. How those two interact becomes critically important for Australia taking this a
0: little bit further, we're also one of the world's largest gas exporters. So apart from some price pressures and crises of supply at home, uh, we're an exporter. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening with those international markets and also how these issues play for Australia's export gas industry in the context of the COP?
2: Yeah, look, I think what we've seen is two things going on with gas. Now, Australia is close to, sometimes is, the largest exporter of liquefied natural gas, or LNG. We're not the largest exporter of gas. Russia holds that um, gold medal by a long way, but it exports the gas via pipelines to both Europe and to China. Now, what's been happening in the last couple of years is global demand for gas has increased dramatically, partly as a result of broader economic conditions, part of it post-covered recovery, and also, more recently, we've seen the impact of the Ukraine war and a, a huge increase in gas prices. I mean to the extent that many Europeans, many people in Britain won't be able to turn their gas heaters on this coming winter. So that creates this enormous demand for uh, for gas and LNG. At the same time, this is the fossil fuel we're talking about. And the IEA and most other organisations who look at this and say, well, we must start, if we we should be now limiting development of new gas fields. I think the way the Australian government's approaching this so far makes sense, but it's tricky. So we have we take the absolute accounting responsibility for our emissions, but we also are part of the global community about what we do about global emissions. We don't if we buy Japanese cars, we don't expect the Japanese government to take responsibility for the emissions for those cars when they drive on Australian roads. The reverse also applies. You don't have to count everything more than once. But you must count everything once. And so this whole question of how do we deal with those gas, the the emissions from those gas exports becomes a central issue in the way we approach COP27 as part of that global community.
0: And Tony, just help us understand, say for instance, gas from the Northwest Shelf, some of the production of that gas for export involves domestic emissions, and then some of it, as you said, the emissions are produced where that gas is burnt, be it Japan or wherever.
2: And that's absolutely, right now, a very current issue because the government, the new Labor government, is consulting on what's called the safeguard mechanism. This was a mechanism introduced to try and keep a break on emissions from the very sort of facilities we're talking about, Don. Now, if we put an absolute cap on our emissions of 43% across the economy... If we then say there has to be a similar absolute cap on industrial emissions, that means that all of the industrial activities, now cement plants, concrete plants, fertiliser plants and gas plants that produce domestic emissions have to all be under that cap. A new gas facility means if if that facility wants to get part of that carbon budget, someone else is going to have to take less of that carbon budget. That tension will play out and it's going to be a huge debate right now those emissions can be very significant for a large LNG facility of the sort we're talking about, certainly in the millions of tonnes. And so it has to be dealt with. And that's that's why it's important that the current government absolutely be held to the legislation, because if we, we don't want to have a legislation which only gets implemented for the first time ever in our history and then go to water the first time it's tested. That would be crazy.
0: Hey, Tony, thank you so much
2: for a great conversation. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Don. I enjoyed it.
1: Let's welcome our next guest to the podcast, Alex Scott. Welcome to the show.
3: Thanks so much.
1: As an expert in climate diplomacy and geopolitics, can you first off describe for our listeners how different stakeholder groups, be that NGOs, industry lobby groups, or even you know any level of government, how do they each approach diplomacy at these climate conference meetings?
3: Sure. Well, I mean, the the climate conference meetings themselves that happen every year, the conferences of the parties, their function is really to be an international norm-setting venue and a space for all different types of stakeholders to agree new ways to work together on addressing the climate crisis. So we have different types of stakeholders from national governments who take part in the formal negotiations on new ways to set up funds to help countries deal with climate impacts, on new ways to set rules for how they'll report on their emissions or how they will set new targets for their emissions and report on their progress towards meeting them. And then in complement to the formal negotiations, there's this kind of, some people call it a circus, a bit of a spectacle (laughs) of climate action that happens alongside. It is a circus. (laughs) It is a bit of a circus, right? And and it brings together business stakeholders, subnational governments, international finance institutions, all demonstrating the climate action that they've been undertaking and the ambition that they're bringing to addressing this crisis. And it brings NGO voices, civil society groups, bringing uh, calls for more ambition bringing pressure for more ambition to bear on all of those different stakeholders, the national government negotiators, and the businesses in particular. It also brings the lobbyists from companies, some who want to call for greater ambition or more clarity in regulatory systems in countries on how they should be dealing with climate change risks or climate change impacts, um, and some who are calling for less ambition. So it's a bit of a mix of diplomatic approaches between those who are trying to push the negotiations and the agreements on how countries are going to cooperate with each other to address the issues of climate change, to push them to go further with a mix of of stakeholders who are trying to slow the process down. So we end up with a bit of a push and a pull on the political environment at these international climate conferences. We have the push coming particularly from the NGO groups and we see them pick up different kinds of diplomatic tactics and activism tactics on the ground in these conferences. At the last UN negotiations that happened in Bonn, the NGO groups were particularly vocal in the hallways of the negotiations. They were colourful with big signs and, and almost marching through the hallways of the negotiations to push the negotiators to reframe how they're thinking about this issue to push for higher ambition. Um, on the flip side, we often see business groups who might not be as interested in the ambitious side of climate change policy being agreed at these conferences, aiming to take over some of the sponsorship of different rooms, of, of some of the circus side, the spectacle side of the climate conferences. And this has long been a bit of a, a grumbling point between the civil society groups and the constituencies who are part of the international, the formal international negotiations. A bit of a question mark over whether and how and who should have the right to take on sponsorship of these international climate change conferences. In Glasgow, we saw them agree that no fossil fuel companies, for example, would have the right to sponsor any part of the conference. That didn't mean that there was no access, because no access means the the exclusion from decision-making and the exclusion from all of the pressure that comes from the groups who are bringing the the push for ambition into the conferences. But a bit of a, a grumble and a bit of an uncertainty about what will happen this year with Egypt, at the helm of organising the COP27 conference and Egypt having a different approach to involving civil society in decision-making in that country and a different approach to managing civil disobedience or protest as well. You
1: know, thinking through all of those different approaches to diplomacy, and that's a whole other episode in itself, which, which form of diplomacy works the best for action on climate change. But to this episode and the energy crises that we're seeing around the world, how do you think that these will impact discussions and diplomacy at COP27?
3: It's been an interesting few years for climate diplomacy, with the geopolitical status of climate action growing and growing and growing. It's it's kind of top bill at all of the G20 conferences, it's top bill at the UN General Assembly each year. It's, it's kind of top of mind in all of the leader speeches. It's a geopolitically important issue. And at the same time, all of the crises that have been hitting over the last few years, the pandemic, this current energy crisis, the food security issues that many countries are facing, being at the, the top of the geopolitical gain also means that the action that countries agree on together to address climate change is subject to all of these interconnecting global issues um, and the economic challenges that they pose and particularly the political challenges that they pose on leaders and ministers who have a very full plate of issues to deal with at the moment. And this current set of energy crises is is definitely one of those global challenges that is at risk of kind of distracting leaders and ministers from the decision-making that they need to, to take on addressing climate change. But it's also a reminder, I think, of the importance of having spaces to cooperate with each other, to agree how to deal with these global commons challenges together. Um, So I think the impact that, that the current energy price hikes and energy supply constraints that countries are facing, the impact it could have on the COP27 conference and the way that that countries bring their positions into the negotiations there on how to agree, how to work better together to address this climate crisis could go two ways. I think there will be some countries coming to COP27 in an almost desperate state with huge challenges back home that they need to grapple with. And we can, we can see countries taking kind of slightly different positions on they're traditionally climate ambitious approaches. And so there's a risk of that coming into the COP27 conference and kind of dampening the ambition that comes out. On the flip side, there are many examples of countries and even in the European Union where we're seeing a real recognition that addressing and accelerating the transition from fossil fuel energy to green energy is a kind of almost a critical path to addressing the current energy crisis and if that's the ambition if that's the kind of thread that gets brought into the COP27 conference in Egypt there's a real chance of a boon in ambition on how countries want to deal with the interconnecting energy and climate change crises together. Good
1: to end optimistically there so thank you very much for joining us on the
3: podcast. You're very welcome thanks very much for having me.
0: We're now going to shift focus to consider another crisis: a crisis of inequality. More specifically, we will talk to Beck about the Paris Agreement and fair share of emission reductions. Hi, Beck. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today.
4: A pleasure to be here, Don.
0: Beck, what mechanisms are in place to make sure that countries do their fair share to act on climate change?
4: That's a great question, Don. So the Paris Agreement, which I'm sure our listeners are all very familiar with, operates on a five-year ambition cycle, which requires countries to submit their nationally determined contributions, or NDCs, every five years to keep global warming below two degrees while pursuing efforts to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. So what it means is there actually isn't a mechanism in the Paris Agreement that allows the globe to determine the adequacy of these contributions and whether or not they amount to a fair share of the global responsibility to reduce emissions. What this means then is there are some provisions in the Paris Agreement which mean that countries have to provide some information about the adequacy of their emissions reductions and why they think that's a fair share of the global emissions reduction responsibility. So they have to provide information about the clarity and the transparency and the understanding of the NDC. And this includes how they think the NDC represents fairness and ambition. The Paris Agreement also requires countries to submit information about how the NDC includes fairness considerations reflecting on equity. But this is left up to countries, so the nationally determined part of that again. And so you look to Australia, for example, and if you actually read what Australia says on how they think we've included a fair share in our emissions reduction, it really just focuses on Australia's national circumstances. And it doesn't really think about the broader responsibility to reduce emissions and how Australia, for example, has more capacity than other countries that are in less advantaged situations than us.
0: In a peer group pressure circumstance like that, Beck, what are the consequences for countries who fail to uphold? Their promises because fairness is how you spread the load, but it's also whether you deliver or not, hey?
4: That's exactly right. And it's another potential stumbling block of the Paris Agreement. It actually doesn't have an enforcement mechanism in it, it just requires on this global stock take. But what we're seeing is around the world, individuals are really looking to other ways to enforce country's commitments to reduce their global emissions and you're seeing a large number of people turn to the courts and seek justice in that forum and this isn't exclusively in national courts and also the international courts as well. So now there are over 2,000 cases worldwide and the jurisdiction with the second highest number of cases behind the United States is actually Australia. So Australia is a hotbed for climate litigation and Litigants have been really creative in the way they've used the existing laws to really hold not only countries, but also corporations to account for their contribution to climate change. So there was a really important case that sparked the success of climate litigation back in 2019, when a Dutch court, in the case of Agenda, found that the Dutch government had a responsibility to reduce their emissions because they owed Dutch citizens a duty of care under their human rights obligations. And it was a really significant turning point for climate litigation. And since then, you've seen other successes and significant failures as well. The Sharma case in Australia, where Australian children tried to sue the Australian government for their failure to act on climate change, which unfortunately was overturned on appeal last year. But then we've had other successes, like the Shell case in the Netherlands as well, where a corporation has been told, Shell, to reduce their emissions. So all of this just adds up to the fact that whilst the Paris Agreement doesn't actually have an enforcement mechanism, people are really seeking justice through other means, and that gives me hope.
0: Bec, thanks so much, and particularly for highlighting how people power through the courts can help uh, hold countries to account. Thanks so much.
4: Thank you so much, Don.
1: Thank you to our guests, Alex Scott, Tony Wood and Rebecca markey towler for joining us today and to our listeners for tuning in. I'm your host, Cathy Oak.
0: And I'm Don Henry. You've been listening to the Climate Talks podcast, produced by Greta Robinstone, Ben Chandler, Kaiser Lundberry and Matthew Lovell. Thanks to Music for a Warming World for providing the show's music Taken from their album, Only One Way to Head.
1: To stay up to date on the latest episodes, subscribe to the Climate Talks podcast. You'll find more information about this episode and our guests in the show notes. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Network Cities and at MCF Unimelb.
0: Thanks for listening, Hey.